You can turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And in a moment we're going to begin reading in verse 11. Last week we addressed perhaps the most ambitious scope of information that I have ever tried to preach in 45 minutes. And uh, the sermon last week had 31 points. And, uh, I mean, primarily these were descriptions that the Apostle Paul has given us of circumstances in our lives and the means by which we can live for God in any one of these situations. So, the fact that the scope was exhaustive, is, uh, or nearly so, um, it kind of goes without saying. God wants us to live for Him in every single circumstance of life. Amen. And l- l- let's face it, it is in the most difficult circumstances, the circumstances in which we are least likely to live for Him, that He gets uh, the most glory out of us obeying Him, right? And so... Um, you guys hung in there. We got through all 31 points. Give yourself a hand. Yeah, all right, good. Um, somebody told me I only sounded like an auctioneer once or twice. <laughs> um, today, you'll be happy to know there's only nine points. Very simple ones at that. So, um, as you also know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to go long, but they're, they're, <laughs> they're divided into three exactly even sections and, and follows the natural flow of the text. So, so just getting right to it, our text is perhaps the premier passage in Scripture, certainly the most used one, on a very important aspect of our faith. The subject matter of our sermon this morning is... Um, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. The subject matter of our sermon this morning is one that is purported to be controversial in our society today. And, I mean, as a matter of fact, it's one, of, it's one that's often avoided in, well, you know, from the pulpit because of how it is misunderstood. And I, I completely feel that as a pastor, as a preacher, um, the possibility of something being misunderstood and offending someone. I mean, I offend enough people when you actually understand what I'm trying to say. And uh, <laughs> so I know the potential here. Um, but, and, and the very title of this doctrine tends to cause negative feelings about religion. And for this reason, I think it is avoided within many churches today. The doctrine is the doctrine of separation. Um, Let's go to our text and see how this doctrine is laid out for us. And, And I'd like you to note especially the context in which the Apostle Paul teaches it to the church in the city of Corinth. Um. Let's pick up in verse 11. We're in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, 
but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that does so powerfully and clearly teach us that we must be separated. Help us, Lord, to grasp the full meaning of this in our hearts that we might apply it in our lives and enjoy the benefits and the fullness of living separated lives. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet been born into your family and doesn't know the joy of calling you Father, I just pray that they would make that life-changing decision today, that your Holy Spirit would draw them uh, to that end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text has some difficult parts in it. I don't know if you noticed those. Um, As a matter of fact, you know, when, when you have a text like this, of this length, and it's got some difficult parts in it, what we tend to do is go straight to those parts that are easy to understand, right? We have a text like this, we tend to glaze over the complex introduction and just remember the parts that have a simpler structure to them. I mean, that's certainly how I have remembered this passage myself. I bet even now, as you remember the text that we just read, Beginning, uh, you're, you're remembering beginning with verse 14. Because, I, I mean, that's how I've always remembered this passage, this text. However, the text actually begins with a very carefully laid foundation upon which this doctrine of separation must be built. And, and as the subject of the text is separation, I think we should ask the question, What is this separation? And the answer um, begins in verse 11. What is this separation? Now, the dictionary gives us a definition of the word separation. That's a good starting point. Is it hot in here? A little bit? What? Oh, it's a sermon. Thank you. (laughs) Nicely done. You can stay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, I don't want you to be cold I I mean if I end up in a tank top up here though there might be some problems (laughs) alright 
So we ask the question, what is this separation? What, what does this mean? The dictionary gives us a definition of the word separation that's, I think, a good starting point. Well, I think uh, as you have some study tools in hand, if you don't have the Power Bible CD, which, by the way, if you don't have one of those and you use a computer, see me after church. I'll give you one for free. All right? It's this awesome Bible study tool. Um, free plug right there. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, one of the important tools to have with you is a dictionary. You know why that is? There's a lot of words in there we don't, we don't use quite the same way they used to use them, all right? So these are helpful. But the dictionary gives us the definition of the word separation. And I think it's a good starting point for our study this morning. It's, it says this. Separation is the action or state of moving or being moved apart. So you see right away, I mean, think about this definition. It tends to emphasize the from aspect of separation, Right? where you are moving apart from something. It reminds us of the primary aspect of separation, that its intent is to avoid the consequences of being close to something. Right? Now, it's for this reason, this idea of of separation, moving away from something dangerous, that's why we move away from dangerous machinery. Right? Right? You ever been on a construction site and and the excavator's swinging around and digging and picking up stuff and moving it over? You don't just wander up close to that thing and start eating a ham sandwich, right? I mean, you you, you try to steer clear of the dangerous machinery. You separate yourself from it so that you don't suffer the consequences of being near it, right? This is the concept. It's the primary concept of separation. And it's for this reason that we move away from something. We separate ourselves from it. But there is also, you'll notice, a natural consequence of moving away from something. Have you ever noticed the natural consequence of moving away from something? I'll show you. Let me illustrate it for you. Um, I want you to notice right now I am close to Peggy. Now we're just going to consider her dangerous right now. Right. Um, I picked the worst person in the whole congregation to to. Um, It's impossible to be separated from one thing and not move closer to another. This is, there's so many practical applications of this, we could spend the next 15 minutes harping on it, but let's just leave that where it lays for now. Our text begins with this very important aspect of separation. It is this first point. We are separated unto a love for each other. This separation to which God has called us is a separation to loving one another. Now, it's the difficult part of the passage that I'm going to start you in. And 
because that's where it starts. And, uh, and, and you're going to see very clearly that that's what Paul's trying to teach us. Paul positions himself first as someone who loves the reader. Do you see that in verse 11? Let me begin in our text by saying that there's an obvious awkwardness to the structure of verses 11 through 13. All right? The reason for this is primarily translation. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not that it's translated wrongly, but that it is a translation, and it's a literal translation at that. So keep that in mind when you seek to understand what's, what's being said. And, and understand this, you certainly don't have to understand Greek to grasp this. What, what does Paul mean when he says, our mouth is open unto you, in verse 11? Our mouth is open unto you. Uh, uh, yeah, see, he's, say, he's, not, he's not saying he's got luck jaw. He's saying um, that he's communicating with them. All right? So what he's saying, he means that he's been vocal in his love for them. It's not something he's left unsaid. He's not been silent in expressing his love for the people of Corinth. And his text, his next clause completes his thought. Our heart is enlarged. Now, now we should be clear. Paul's not admitting to a serious medical condition here. He, he's using a, a common metaphor that we use all the time today. Oh, he has a big heart. Right? What do we mean by that? He's such a loving person. That's what we mean by that, right? So Paul's just saying the exact same thing. He's, he, he's using this common metaphor to say that he loves them a lot. So Paul is saying that he loves them and that he's not been silent about it. Now let's move on into the next verse where the language gets a little difficult. However, I, I think that we're going to be able to flesh this out with little effort. Paul says, ye are not straightened in us. I want you to focus on the word straightened, all right? It means confined or narrow. A straightened place is a place that doesn't have a lot of room. It's a small place. Paul means to communicate to the people of Corinth that they did not have a small place in his affections. Okay? Had he said the opposite, that they were straightened in him, he'd be saying something like, you are on thin ice with me. Anyone ever told you that? Anyone ever told you that to whom you're married? Well, <laughs> that means you are straightened. You, are, you, you don't have a lot of wiggle room. You're on thin ice. Paul's saying exactly the opposite of this, okay? He's saying um, that, he, says, he says that they have a huge place in his affections. That they mean a lot to him. I can fully identify with this desire to communicate these feelings to people, the people to whom God has called me to minister. You hold a prominent and a significant place in my heart. Now, now the, the second clause in this verse I, can, I cannot identify with as easily, but it, it's tragic. Paul says, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. All these things sound like medical conditions, but... that. <laughs> Evidently, the affection that Paul had for them was not fully reciprocated. He says, you, on the other hand, seem to have a very small place in your affections for your brothers and sisters in Christ. The term bowels 
is often used in Scripture and in, in the Old English to refer to um, emotions or affections in the Apostles' letters. And, and, it, and here it is no different. It's not specific to the Apostle and he never speaks um, specifically of their affections for him. So we're going to conclude that their lack of affections that he's speaking of here, the straightening of their bowels um, and the narrowing of their capacity to love, maybe a lack of affection and love for all brothers and sisters in Christ, but at the very least for Paul and his ministry team. In verse 13, Paul challenges them to return the love that he has for them. His goal for them is, and he, and he says, for a recompense in the same. Y- y'all know that word recompense? It's, it's payback, right? And, and he wants them to enjoy the same love that he enjoyed in his own life. And, and it is not, if you read the whole context, you can see Paul isn't just saying, I'm tired of being the only one loving here. Give me a little love. That's not, that's not just what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to know what it's like to love like I love. Because this is, this is the way to live. I've done both things, and this is the way to live. All right? To love people. To love your brothers and sisters in Christ so much. I mean, to have a, a large place in your heart for them. Do you open yourself up to some vulnerability in that? Oh, absolutely you do. That's the nature of the beast. But it is worth it to love your brothers and sisters in this way. And Paul Paul wants for them to enjoy the same blessing that he enjoys by loving the way he does. This is the kind of hopes that a father would have for his children. And, and he intimates this in parentheses there in verse 13. You see that I, I speak as unto my children, he says. No one wants better for someone than the father of that person. And that's the depth of feeling that Paul had for them. He wants them to know the joy of loving as much as he does. And so he says this, Be ye also enlarged. From this we learn that the separation to which we are called is a separation unto love for each other. And this is the context of our separation. We're separated unto a love for each other. I think often this doctrine of separation is communicated without that context. That we are, we're not just separated from stuff. We're not just a bunch of empty shells walking around lonely. God has separated us. And challenged us to a separation that, that includes loving each other. So, it is a separation unto a love for each other. Now, look at the second aspect of the separation to which we are called. It's in verses 14 and 15. And here we move into some more s- simple structure um, of the passage and this is really, this is the one we remember because it's so clear and the argument is made so well. We are commanded here to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do you see that in verses 14 and 15? The term yoke, we're not talking about the yellow part of an egg here, okay? Um, the term yoke 
is it implies that every person is pulling someone's plow. Okay? You say, oh no, I live for myself. I don't live for anyone else. Okay, well then you uh, live for the devil because that's exactly what he wants. All right? So <laughs> everyone is pulling someone's plow. Let's not act like we're not accomplishing something for either God or the devil. All right? And, and, and that's, that's, that's just a fact of life. Everyone's pulling someone's plow. And the relationships you form in this life either make that job easier or harder. You ever worked with someone that makes the job you're doing harder? You know the term, many hands make light work. They also make big messes. You know, (laughs) right? It has to do with whether that person or the people you're working beside actually are trying to accomplish the same thing you're trying to accomplish. I can remember um, playing with my kids that one time. And um, <laughs> and playing with Legos, and I, I, you know, I get a little into it a little bit. Whether I was um, coloring with Allie or playing Legos with Christian, you know, and I start making my little thing over here, and he needs one of the pieces that's on what I'm making, and so he just reaches out and grabs it, and I'm like, hey. We're making this over here. He's like, he's thinking, I'm dumb, making this over here, right? We got two completely different goals, and we're working with the same pieces. Um, the, the fact is, uh, if two people are working together that have two completely different goals, you're not going to be accomplishing what you mean to accomplish. Think about how this has proven true in your own life. As a Christian, uh, as a child of God, You have the task of plowing in his field. What happens if two oxen with completely different minds, two different goals, get hitched up to the same yoke? The plowing becomes unprofitable, right? The furrows, they're no longer straight if they're made at all. We must be selective in our relationships lest we sacrifice the work to which God has called us. The separation to which we are called is a separation from the unrighteous. Now, does this mean that we cannot have any relationships with the lost? I mean, you'd have to skip an awful lot of scripture to come to that conclusion, right? (laughs) It doesn't mean that at all. As a matter of fact, we must seek to build relationships through which we can minister to those who don't know Jesus. But what it does mean is that we need to not seek relationships with the lost that are going to affect the direction and flow of our lives. It's one thing to plow in the field of the Lord. It's another to hitch up with another oxen that opposes, that has complete opposite interests in life. They're not going to help you get closer to God or closer to his people. They're not going to make your service for him more profitable. Paul makes this very argument in the remaining part of verses 14 and 15. He asks the rhetorical question. He says, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What's the answer to that? None. The answer is obvious, right? I mean, unrighteousness and righteousness, they they don't fellowship together. He asks a second question to which the answer is the same. He says, what communion hath light with darkness? 
You ever turned on a light in the room and have the light just kind of uh, compromise with the dark and and uh, and you got half the room dark and half the room light and they're all polite to each other? It doesn't work that way. There's no communion between those two. It's one or the other, right? Remember, again, that we are all plowing in someone's field. And the devil has his plowers too. And, and whether they're aware of it or not, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're not all devil worshippers. But let's face it, and I think maybe a little personal um, admission on this is valid. You ever done some work for the devil? I mean, in retrospect, say, oh, yeah, I was doing his work. I wasn't doing God's work, right? I mean, that, and, if, and if you don't know about that, you need to think a little bit harder, right? Okay, so, so I'm not trying to be overly critical of, uh, of someone who's, who's not doing the right thing, but whether they are aware of it or not, they're towing his plow. Now, if a child of God whose passion should be to do God's will hitches up with someone who does the will of the devil, who is also called Belial, will they be in in concord? Will they be in agreement? This is the question that Paul asks next. What concord hath Christ with Belial? The answer, again, of course, is none. The last question in verse 15 uses the term believer and infidel. Which means, by the way, the word infidel means unbeliever, okay? So what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What's the answer to that question? It is none. We don't have the same passions. We don't have the same goals. If we try to pretend like there's no difference between us, we render ourselves unable to help them. We hinder our own service to God. We must understand that the separation to which we are called by God is a separation from the unrighteous. This is not because we are better than they are. It's because we have different goals. Finally, we come to the third aspect. And and, and you know this to be key to success in your life. If you've ever gotten in with the wrong crowd, so they say, right? You know this to be key to success in your own life, to establish a certain amount of separation, right? So we come to the third aspect of the separation to which we are called, and it is a separation unto love for each other. It's a separation from the unrighteous, and then primarily it is a separation unto the Lord. Look at verse 16, it says, And what agreement um, hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, uh, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. This verse speaks to our new identity when we're born into the family of God. We become the temple of God. And this is the permanent dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God lives here. Isn't that an awesome thought? You know, um, there are certain buildings that are quite prestigious, right? And you go into these buildings and you're like afraid to touch anything because everything's so beautiful. Because those buildings have a specific purpose. Can I tell you something? You are the building in which God has chosen to live. He's designed you for this purpose, to be his temple. Paul constantly emphasized this to the churches to whom he wrote. To the Ephesians, he said... 
in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. He expresses the same truth to the Hebrews. He says, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Peter too thought this an essential truth and spoke of it in his general letter to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. He said, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This explains the entire doctrine of separation. For our God is, before he is anything, a holy God. Holy means separated specifically from sin. And as this is God's primary characteristic, it is no wonder that it requires of his own habitation to be holy and separated too. We tend to tailor our living space to our own tastes, don't we? I mean, God's asking for nothing more. That's our reasonable service to him. So we must separate ourselves unto him. Recognizing this place belongs to him. This is where God lives. See how this verse 16 also points out the relationship God wants to have with us. It says he'll dwell in us. You see that? But he also wants to walk in us. That speaks of a, of a fellowship. He wants us to spend time with him. That takes determination on our part. Separation from something so that we might be separate separated unto him. As I'm often appropriately reminded, a strong and a healthy relationship requires separation from whatever else it is we're doing to focus on the conversation or the companionship with the other party. Now, I can blame the fact that I'm a guy, that I'm not real good at that, but that's really no excuse. (laughs) The truth is, to have a healthy relationship, sometimes you've got to drop what you're doing and turn your head and look at somebody. Amen. <laughs> All you guys are going, oh, Pastor Josh, I am never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> um, but, you know, here's, but that, that's the truth. I mean, that, that, is, that is an important part of a healthy relationship is the willingness to let something else go so that you can focus on the other person in the relationship. In this, in this case, we're talking about God. That means you are going to have to let something go so that you can focus on your relationship with him. This is what God wants of us in the way of separation. He wants us to focus on him. Let me ask you this, but just ask you a couple of convicting questions. How much time from your busy week do you spend focused only on God? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking about your group time together here in the church. That's great. I'm talking about when it's just you and God in the room. I mean, do, do you invest that amount of time into that relationship? That it requires? How much time is filled with just you and your Bible in prayer? That's what it means to be separated unto God. Look now to the clear and practical steps to accomplish this separation that is so necessary for our healthy relationship with God. There's two aspects of this. Our part and God's part. 
We'll spend a little more time on our part because that's the part that's hard to get right. He does really well on his part, so we'll spend a little less time on that. But let's start with our part. The steps are clear for us. If you look at verse uh, 17, you see that very first step. Wherefore, come out from among them. There's the first step. Come out. You know, this phrase holds in our society an entirely different connotation than when it was written, doesn't it? Am I the only one that saw that? (laughs) Now, Nowadays, it's used to describe the publicizing of sin. Isn't that interesting? The term come out is now used to describe making public one's deviant nature. Ironically, in a world that now admires deviancy above all else, this is deemed courageous. Let me tell you what is courageous. It is courageous to come out as one who knows God can deliver the deviant in a world that considers that hate speech. It is courageous to proclaim the gospel to a world convinced that they don't need it. It is courageous to come out as a Christian in a world that despises Christ. It is courageous to come out as holy in a world that glorifies sin. It is courageous to come out as someone who has found the truth in a world that denies the existence of truth. It is courageous to come out as a believer of the Bible in a world that increasingly considers it to be archaic and irrelevant. And it is courageous to come out as a friend of God in a world that has positioned itself as his enemy. It is courageous to come out as both loving and truthful when the world screams for tolerance and compromise. That is courageous. Beloved, if we are to be separated, we cannot do this in the closet. We need to come out. This alone is not enough, though. There must be a second step essential to the success of the first. Be separate. You see that in verse 17? Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Here's the fact. You can do great damage to the cause of Christ by coming out as a Christian and then living like you are lost. When you publicize your faith, and let everyone know you are a follower of Christ, know this, whatever people say to you, they're watching to see what that looks like. They're watching to see what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And when they see the same habits in your life that they have in their own life, and they see the same vices in your life that they also entertain, they are likely to come to the conclusion that there is no difference between you. Think also of this from God's perspective. Have you ever invited someone over to your place for dinner? Ever, anyone ever done that? How does that, how does that work? You invite them. You settle on a time, maybe you send them a little text, say, 6 o'clock, all right, good, look forward to seeing you, right? 
They come, and they, they, they come over, you invite them, you settle on a time. Imagine this. They show up, and you reveal yourself to be wholly unprepared for them. They knock on the door. I know I saw him through the window. I know he's in there. Right, finally, you... Uh, reluctantly open the door and without a single word you just wander back into your house like it doesn't like you didn't recognize the person's presence you sit back down on your couch and continue to watch live pd that's an awesome show by the way after an hour of awkwardness as they try to decide whether they should sit on the other couch or or what is going on you finally Get up and go to the refrigerator and you stare into it for a little bit. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Right? You pull out some sandwich makings and you put a nice ham and cheese together. Which you take back to your couch and you start eating. Your company sits there wondering if you even realize they're still there. See, I think this is somehow, sometimes how we treat God. We invite him into our lives. We say, hey, mikasa sukasa. Right? God, it's your house. We come out as temples of the Most High God. And then we act like nothing's changed. Like God isn't there. We don't cater to Him. We don't let it change the way we live our lives. We still live just for ourselves. God says, be separate. We must actually live differently. You see? The word uh, be is, this might come as a surprise to you, it's a being verb. I'm just, it's, don't worry about it. It's highly technical. I'm a grammar geek. No, I bet you knew it was a being verb. You know what that means? You're supposed to be different. <laughs> right? You're, you're actually supposed to live differently. We're supposed to be building our rapport with God. This is what it means to be separate. It means to live like you know He's now the most important part of your life. Finally, for our part, there's an exclusive, there's an exclusivity that implied uh, this this last step, and it is touch not. Can I tell you something? God wants us to Himself. You see that in verse 17? He says, "And touch not the unclean thing." God wants us to himself. He requires us to avoid the sinful activities that he despises. This means that we don't get to dabble in sin. Apply this to your entertainment and see if it has an impact on your relationship with God. Again, think of this in the context of an exclusive relationship. What is is an exclusive relationship that we all well know? Marriage, right? 
So imagine if my wife walks into Starbucks for a tall decaf coconut milk raspberry latte. <laughs> I've said that a few times. And then I always say, it's for my wife, because I'm embarrassed to have, for having ordered it. But that, Imagine my wife walks into Starbucks for this drink, and I'm seated with another woman on a date. Well, how terrible of me. Tiff strolls over to the table, and I look up and say, oh, hey, hon, don't worry about it. We're just on a date. I'll see you when I get home. How would that work? Well, I can tell you one thing. Starbucks would not look the way it looked when she walked in. <laughs> it's not okay, right? That is not acceptable. You see, it's an exclusive relationship. <laughs> Why then do you think we can entertain competing relationships and activities while claiming to be followers of God? This is an exclusive relationship that we have with him. The fact is the benefits of an exclusive relationship far exceed the alternative. You know why I'm perfectly happy to maintain an exclusive relationship with my wife? Oh, it's purely selfish. It's better for me. I mean, it's not purely selfish. It's unselfish too. But it's better for me. (laughs) Okay? It's not like I'm missing something. When we make our relationship with God exclusive and we decide, okay, well that means that I no longer do this, this, and this. It makes our relationship with God better and it is better for us. It's the way we were designed. Let's look at God's part very quickly. He says in the very last clause of verse 17, I will receive you. Is that not a comforting thought? I will receive you. This is the part God promises. And to some great extent, it's not based on our perfection, but on the relationship that he started with us. There's an acceptance of our lives and our activities of which this speaks, though, that goes beyond acceptance of us. God has made this clear, that once he starts this kind of a relationship, he doesn't back out. Praise God for that. Amen? You get born into God's family, you don't get thrown out. You don't get put up for adoption. When, When you're born into God's family... You are permanently His. That's a great thing. So you know this, that He'll always accept you. Does that mean He accepts everything you do? No. That's what this is talking about here. Living separated means God is accepting and receiving of our lives and what we do. What a wonderful thing to know this. I'm making God happy with how I live. That's a wonderful thought. This really leads right into the next part that God plays. He says, and I will be a father unto you. Isn't that, isn't that, think of all that a father is supposed to be. 
a protector, a provider, an advisor, a rock. Someone that never moves, that you can always depend on being the same. God says, I'll be a father to you. God wants to take this role in your life. Your separation from the world and to him will accentuate that role. It will strengthen that relationship. I want, I want you to see just the last part of verse 18 now. He says, I will be a father unto you. And that there is a result to that, being born into God's family. Uh, the, the best part of being born into God's family is you get God, right? I mean, that, it doesn't get better than that. But there is another good part of it. He says, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, this, there's an implication here that I want to emphasize, because we've already emphasized the fact that he'll be your father. But if there are sons and daughters, you know what that means? It means I get a family. See, that's so important in this doctrine of separation to recognize this. That yes, this, this may mean I have to lose some friends. This might mean that I don't hang with the same people I used to hang with. People that were close to me, people that were special to me. And, and I, now I recognize if I put my neck in a yoke with them, we're going to end up not going where I want to go. We're going to end up not being profitable to the Lord. So we have to make what is sometimes a heart-wrenching, heart-breaking decision to separate ourselves from the unrighteous. But it is not that we are suddenly alone. Yeah, the society is moving away from Christian principles. And sometimes it makes you feel a little bit alone, but look around. Lo and behold, when you're born into God's family, you get a family. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ. And now let's face it. You look around and you say, I don't like them all very much. <laughs> well, it's okay. You're probably not real likable either. <laughs> But I think if you'll put the effort out there, you know what you're going to find out? By the way, that, that, that's uh, present company excluded. You guys are the most likable group ever. But, but, <laughs> but what, what you'll find out if you put a little bit of effort out there, that you are, <laughs> I'm getting there, Kevin, is that, is that you are surrounded by a group of people that came to the realization that they were nothing and needed Jesus. What a great foundation to start a relationship. No one thinks they're better than each other because the whole basis of our relationship is we needed Jesus. We all needed the same amount of him. Our sins, all of our sins were covered by the same price. The ground is level at the cross. And the fellowship is sweet between those who've been born into his family because we've all, we all got here by grace. <laughs> None of us earned it. And that's a pretty strong foundation 
to build a family relationship. It really brings us full circle. As you remember, the separation to which we are called is a separation to love one another. God promises a family atmosphere, and that can only be wholly embraced when we are willing to be separated. Now, you may be here today and you say, you know, I don't know about this separation thing. I, I, I kind of like what I see in people that know Jesus. I see a change in life and I, I could use that myself. You know what I would love to show you? Something from the Bible. How you can enter into a relationship with God that will give you victory over your sin. That will start you on a path that pleases Him. And you can begin to know the joy of separation. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation that is entitled, I Surrender All. It's number 308 in your hymn books if you'd like to follow along there. Go ahead and stand as you find that as you get ready to sing All to Jesus I Surrender. If you'd like to know more about Receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, just come sit in the front row so I can show you from my Bible how you can begin that relationship with Him. On that first stanza, all to Jesus, I surrender.